This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everybody and welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Hope everyone had a great weekend and we've got a... Um, yeah, pretty action-packed show again today. As I uh, came in to the studio this morning, there was a beautiful red sky lighting up um, the world, I guess, Melbourne. Um, it's a you know sign of the kind of season that we're moving into as summer approaches and, you know, new dreams are made. How's everyone going this morning? We've got Jackson and Layla here. I'm James. It was a very romantic opening, James. Uh, it was a beautiful skyline this morning. I was running late, so I had one of those moments where I had difficulty being in the moment to appreciate it. I was busy swerving down Footscray Road. Uh, I'm good, though. I'm a little tired after the weekend. It was a big and busy weekend. Thank you to everyone who came along to our fundraiser on Saturday night. It was a great night. Though, I must say, the film was pretty rocking, like as in, and I think Tarnin was one of the panellists afterwards, said afterwards she felt a bit deflated. I think that was a fair assessment of learning about what for me was a um, a struggle and a conflict I didn't had never heard of, which suggests just how powerful the Moroccan and global media blackout on the struggle of the West Saharan people is. Uh, so I thought for those who couldn't make it during alternative news, We'll just give a quick rundown of what's going on in Western Sahara and has been since the 1970s. It's been a very long um, and thus far largely fruitless struggle. Layla, how are you this morning? Excellent, especially after that like inspirational boost from James. I'm feeling very optimistic. <laughs> New dreams on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel it. Well, I think that you know, summer is a time when people look to new horizons, um, new friendships, new loves, and, you know, it's a time where people can think about the world that awaits them. Perhaps we could set up a uh, Ask James advice line. Happy to oblige. Before we... I've got some um, less happy things I want to discuss in alternative news, but I, I wanted to just quickly touch on... <coughs> I saw a couple of uh, really interesting productions uh, last week, um, saw a conversation, and we had Kerry on the show mm. um, a few weeks back, and yeah, it's quite heavy content um, in the show, um, but it, it is a really, yeah, really interesting kind of look at, uh, even just from the perspective of in 2001 when David Williamson wrote that show and the um, group conferencing kind of... Um, model was quite prevalent then to, you know, now and the federal and state drive for law and order is really uh, about punishment and 
not about rehabilitating anyone, including the kind of victims' families and things like that. Um, so yeah, that was really interesting. And song for a weary throat, um, which was quite amazing actually. I think that um, there's a couple of shows that I've seen with the kind of uh, lighting and sound uh, that they use in its show, and yeah, it's quite spectacular. I think that it really um, jolts you into feeling and um, the kind of anticipation that you have um, for there's like a sonic boom kind of um, towards the start of the show which you know sets the post-apocalyptic world that you are brought into and yeah you were kind of waiting for that to happen again um, which it did but it sounds a bit uh Anton Artaud theatre of cruelty on the edge of your seats just waiting for the sonic boom yeah it is a bit like that teeth set <clears throat> yeah. yeah on edge uh, I think that they are both still running at their mm-hmm. respective um, theatres, so people have got a chance to still check those out. Yeah, Song for Weary Throat is at Fair- Fairfax, I think, at the Arts Centre yep. as part of the Melbourne Arts Festival, and a conversation is showing in Sunshine with Powder Keg Players. I'm not yep, sure of the venue, right. but I think I'm going to go on Friday as well. The conversation, for those listeners who missed it, is a David Williamson play of a few years ago about... Um, victim and perpetrator's families in a uh, violent crime coming together to discuss, um, I suppose, restoration. Would that be right? Um, well, the process is um, it's just about, I guess, trying to, you know, because both of the families of, um, you know, people involved in a crime like that, are, you know, they have their own kind of um, journey to go through, I guess, and the pain and things that they experience and it's about kind of opening them up and letting people get sort through that in a way Mm. Mm. i saw a few shows over the last week as well i went to melbourne's fire gardens which was i think a new zealand collective coming to set all of the botanic gardens on fire i was a little under underwhelmed for the first uh 15 20 minutes as i walked in there was some metal sculptures everything was on fire didn't you know, it was a bit of a spectacle without a lot of substance. But as you move deeper into the gardens, it does kind of reveal itself and it, you start to see the scope and size of the installation. You know, it really covers an enormous amount of space. And they've been very clever with some of their uses of um, wire and wood. And, you know, there's this incredible uh, kind of flowing charcoal river that looks like a road made of fire from a distance, kind of cascades down a hill. So, and I think it was quite transporting. It was a very family friendly but yeah what well, certainly did not have a strong uh narrative per se it was just fire but shouldn't it be like this is what the world may look like in 10 15 years time if we don't do anything about climate change there was not that vibe oh, okay. going going on from my from my <laughs> reading there was more you know um kind of uh, interesting sonic music, you know, quite, tra- you know, transporting, like another world, not like this world on fire. It wasn't supposed to make you feel frightened. That was my feeling. It was supposed to make you feel entranced. Hmm. So it was more like a, a diversion. I also saw trustees. We had a Naharika Senapathy in um, by the Belarus Three Theatre Company. It's only on to the 23rd of October, but all I would say is go and see it. I thought it was fantastic. It was one of the best things I'd seen in years. And I, I'm lucky I do get to go to quite a bit of theatre and it was, um, it was just unbelievable. I won't say any more. Well, um, yeah, because we should move on to alternative news, but I'll just give a quick rundown of what's on the show. We've got, um, an interview with Jane Morton on Don't Mention the Emergency. And, uh, we have Over the Wall, which is talking about the cashless card campaign. 
Um, and later on, we've got a um, special panel on the New Economy Conference, which is coming up. So we've got some speakers from that conference having a chat to us about um, their alternatives for um, capitalist economics. Um, but right now, let's play a little intro and get into some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, who? For alternative news. Well, I'll, I'll begin, and um, then, well, there was there was a moment silence, so I've taken the opportunity. I'll just be quick because it is something that um, has taken, uh, you know, has been a part of the news. But I think it speaks to um, some disturbing things happening in the country, and that's that there's been uh, neo-Nazis that have um, infiltrated the National Party. Some may say, um, how did anyone know? But I think that, um, you know, it, it is kind of interesting the way that they've, they stacked branch meetings just before the cutoff point of, um, when they can vote. And so then they came to the conference and, you know, they've really tried to, uh, influence the policy, um, drive of the national party and by, you know, things like, uh, immigration policy and things like that. And it's a, yeah, it's a pretty disturbing um, kind of thing that's happening, I guess, in Australia and obviously globally as well. Um, and actually a few weeks back, I was driving in Faulkner and um, there was a person outside of the car and was just like throwing things at this car at the intersection. Um, and then the guy got out who was a Muslim man who was driving the car and this um, white guy who was attacking the guy's car um, started attacking the, the driver and, and kicking in the car and, and everything like that. Um, and then he was, he was yelling uh, racist things at the guy. Um, you know, I pulled over and um, other people as well had kind of like um, come towards the car and so that guy kind of fled and stuff. And um, But, you know, this uh, young Muslim man was in the car with his family. His kids were... Uh, pretty terrified of the kind of whole situation. And I think this is the kind of reality of when white nationalists and these far-right people are given a voice and they're mainstreamed, then this kind of behaviour is excused and, and is people that have these kind of racist views uh, yeah. feel confident to behave like that. And I think that's the kind of... We can see it in the kind of um, infiltration of... Uh, parliamentary politics like we're seeing and, and you know, the Blair, Blairs on the street talking about their love of Hitler. But this is a reality for, you know, for many people of colour on, on, on the streets in Australia. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we just had Liep Groni's kind of memorial like a couple of weeks ago um, and white supremacy globally seems to be on the rise because there's that quote that capitalism in de- K just turns into fascism. 
So it just seems like a pretty good rallying cry for the white working class to kind of like funnel their disillusioned energy into something. And so it's like division because we haven't learnt from Rome's mistake of divide and conquer and uh, just kind of perpetuating this, which is um, unfortunate. But I'm a pathological optimist, so I I feel like they have no chance. (laughs) Especially if people continue to oppose them and get out on the streets. I think there's a number of events coming up. There was 100,000 in Germany, actually, that marched mm. against the, the far right. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the tension is real, and um, I feel like unity will uh, prevail. Mm. Jackson, do you wanted to touch on some Western Saharan politics? Well, I was just going to say, I didn't know anything about... The struggle of the West Saharan people, I'm not sure whether our listeners do. They might, and if you do, I apologise for my brief rundown. But at our fundraiser on Saturday, we watched a film called Life is Waiting, which was made by an organisation called Cultures of Resistance. And it kind of told the story um, from the 19, from 1975 when Morocco was granted its independence by a UN panel from the French colonists that had um, been stationed there throughout the colonial period. Uh, but this corner in the western, uh, this very southwestern section of Morocco had actually been settled by the Spanish and many centuries ago by, uh, uh kind of Arab, uh, colonists as well. Um, and they have their own culture, their own history, their own sense of identity. And from the very outset of this, uh, UN negotiation, they were agitating for, uh, self governance and um you know the ability to decide their own fate rather than just be lumped in uh with with as morocco which was a country they didn't see a lot of uh cultural connection to beyond their uh, geographical proximity uh but unfortunately uh and they fought a war they they then fought a war an armed struggle uh from 1975 until 1991 uh the polisario was their uh, armed front in which they fought uh for this right to uh self self-rule or the opportunity to at least have a vote and eventually the UN uh, signed a peace treaty uh, brought the parties to the table and signed a peace treaty promising them a referendum on their independence in 1991 which never eventuated this uh, this referendum has been consistently vetoed uh, within the UN by France who have some very lucrative fishing uh, trade deals with Morocco a lot of the fish out of Morocco actually comes from Western Sahara as well as phosphate and there's now the opportunity for oil exploration as well so while there's this opportunity uh, for money to be made it seems that the un is not willing to grant these people independence and the situation on the ground as we saw in the documentary is that west saharans are oppressed imprisoned beaten in the streets um you know it's obviously a very cheap area of labor to pull all these fish and phosphate out where we heard of australian companies illegally exporting phosphate uh, out of out of the country for fertilizer and whatnot uh, and it just continues since 92 when they didn't Sign the uh, didn't allow the vote to go ahead. Uh, West West Saharans have engaged in non-violent resistance, making music and art to bring attention to their cause. But there's been a really strong effort by the Moroccan authorities to create a media blackout about this very issue. There's millions of people living, you know, uh, either in occupied zones where all of the economic activity is, or liberated territories which are you know, not as economically developed or in refugee camps in Algeria. Uh, and it seems that it's a bit of an impasse uh, apart. And, and the request from Kamal Fidel, who, is the, who spoke after um, 
the the film was screened, who's a member of the Australian West Saharan Association, was for people to talk about this issue and to educate themselves about the issue. It's not something that we we, we very rarely, very, very rarely see uh, in the news in the West, uh, unlike some other struggles. There's a lot of struggles going on in the world, but it is interesting that this one, uh, Fidel described it as the largest remaining uh, colony in Africa. Um, we also had an Indigenous uh, spokeswoman, uh, Tarnine, was also speaking, and I think you know, she would say that Australia is the largest remaining colonised country uh, outside of Africa. But yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it was a really informative evening and uh, I just wanted to speak a little bit on it uh, because that was what we were encouraged to do. Well, um, perhaps that is something that we could look at um, covering on the show and bring some people some more information about it because, like you said, in the film we've talked a lot about uh, how much the, you know, the news is, is um, you know, is blacked out from people being able to take part in and that's... Certainly something we could do here as a privileged um, with our microphones to speak to people. Um, but as we move out of alternative news, we've got um, an interview to play um, Jane Morton. Um, Leila, did you want to introduce that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so last week I had a conversation with yeah, Jane Morton. She's the author of Don't Mention the Emergency. It's a resource manual on how to consider and act in our state of climate emergency. Jane's got a history um, as a clinical psychologist, um, and it kind of shapes the context of our conversation. So we, it, it, it's pretty emotionally charged in the sense that it's like, um, so uh, Jane's like a mother, grandmother, I'm... Um, you know, kind of a young millennial, and it's kind of this cross-contamination of wisdom and and um, direct experience that um, helps us talk about the power of language, pathological optimism. So I used that term for it before. I've never used that before, but I resonate with it a little bit. Um, and uh, just generally the fate of our species. So that's why it's so emotionally charged. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to say to procure... A copy of Jane's work, don't mention the emergency, visit climateemergencydeclaration.org and you can download a PDF for free. Yeah, enjoy. Is honesty the best policy for survival? I think honesty is the best policy in general, but I think especially in the case of survival, um, I think the messages that work in public health are honest messages. Smoke and you'll die, but you can quit. Um, speed through the back streets and you may run over a small child, but you can slow down. So what, what's been shown in public health is high threat, high efficacy messages work. Basically the ones that scare you, but tell you what you can do. And it, it's quite surprising to me that there's so much argument about this still. And there's people going around still saying fear doesn't work. I mean, how many political campaigns have we seen run on fear? How many public health campaigns have we seen run on fear? And when you think of an actual emergency message, like a fire is approaching Geelong, no one would go, oh, don't scare people. With, an, with a natural disaster or an impending danger, people are usually told very honestly about the danger and told very directly what to do. Leave by the southern road. The northern road is blocked. Now, if you think... Of, well, what we're facing is a climate emergency, not just this sort of issue that's one issue amongst many. 
it seems really clear, like it's so clear there's no research on it, that you tell people there's a threat and you tell people what to do. I'm amazed that this is still a question. So how would you frame the messaging around climate change? Well, first of all, I would never call it climate change Mm -hmm. because there's um, a right-wing advisor to the Republicans, Stephen Lunds, who told them to use climate change, not global warming, because climate change is, oh, yeah, the climate's always changing. It feeds right into their meme. The climate is always changing. Um, It sounds less scary. Yeah, changing. Ah, we can live with change. Whereas global warming is more scary. It motivates people to act more. Um, At the very least, use global warming. But I would never even stop at that. I think just call it a climate emergency at this point. I mean, what the IPCC is saying, and they're a fairly reluctant to speak out sort of body, is that we need unprecedented action. So we've got to actually get into an emergency mentality. So you've got to put emergency or something like it in there somewhere. I prefer emergency, climate emergency, to climate catastrophe or climate damage because it sounds like something that's already happened. But what we need to do is get people into a sort of different psychological state, which is emergency mode. So it's like the difference between sitting around the dinner table, you know, discussing the bills and discussing, you know, who's doing what the next day, and then a fire breaks out on the stove. You're not going, oh, how much will this cost or, you know, who should do this? You just do everything you can until it's out. It's the major focus. And I think if people were really aware of how serious the climate emergency is, that's exactly what would happen. We would just stop everything. We'd throw everything we've got at it, every technological um, solution. Um, we'd organise society around doing whatever it took. What do you think stopping people from getting to this psychological state of mind Well, there's a number of things, and broadly they revolve around people have not really been told. You know, people have, I think the climate movement has made a terrible mistake by basically engaging with the deniers in their space. So deniers have said it's not happening, it's a hoax, and climate movement has gone, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. Well, that drags the debate right down to, yeah, it's happening or it's not, or it's probably happening. Some people think it's happening. You know, we're not really sure whether it's happening. You know, if we had started back in about 2007 or 2008 saying it's an emergency, it's an emergency, it's an emergency, we would have dragged them up to debating us. Um, but instead we've been down in the wrong ballpark, basically. So I think that's been for a number of reasons. One is just straight out lies. I think, you know, that's now out in the open that that big companies have spent just buckets of money on really clever campaigns full of lies. You know, they've set up, you know, fake think tanks, basically, like our old, our own um, Institute for Public Affairs, you know, which gets on the ABC as an independent commentator, and yet it's largely funded by Jenna Reinhardt. Um, so, like, there's been a campaign of lies. That's one thing. There's also been a thing that's called scientific reticence. Like, scientists are actually trained to be very non-emotional, for good reason, because you don't want scientists making up their minds on emotion. You want them making up their minds on the facts. But then when it comes to conveying some really scary information, like most people could die, they use terms, like even now they use terms like existential risk, which on an informal poll of people coming through my house, nine out of 11 thought it was something to do with existentialism. But seriously, they don't think that it means most people will die. 
So these guys are trying to do the right thing and communicate, but they, the, the language they use is so esoteric and so unemotional that it just doesn't get through. Anyway, that's number two. The third is the one that I've been most focused on because of my background as a psychologist. And I call it cherry-picking the psychology. So, look, I don't know how many articles have come out in all sorts of, you know, The Conversation, The Guardian, The Age, all sorts of um, books, articles saying fear doesn't work. Um, there was a great big thing. I don't know if you saw um, an article by David Wallace-Wells. It was in the New York magazine. And he's deputy editor of the New York magazine. Like, this is no junior guy just, you know, um, saying what comes to the top off the top of his head. He interviewed 20 scientists to really get to the bottom of how serious is this? What could happen? What's the worst-case scenario? He wrote a brilliant article in all the emotional language that scientists can't use, you know, really describing how bad it could get. And he started off with something like, you know, I don't care how scared you are, you're not scared enough. Um, and he got attacked. He got attacked by climate scientists and by climate activists based on this idea that you mustn't scare people. This is called do doom and gloom. It was too much doom and gloom. Well, it's not what ordinary people thought. Two million people read that article. It got shared all over the place. It was apparently exactly what the, the public wanted to know. But poor old David Wallace-Wells got absolutely attacked from his own side by climate scientists and activists on this fear-doesn't-work business. And so that's what really motivated me to actually write something. Because at the moment we're muzzling ourselves. There's a whole lot of people who are in the climate space who are not prepared to say how bad it is partly because they don't want to say how big the changes are that we need to make. And so they're pretending it's not that bad so that, you know, oh, 100% renewables will fix it, oh, stop Adani, we'll save the reef. But this is really dishonest. And I don't think people realise they're being dishonest. This thing about fear doesn't work has been repeated so often that they think that it really doesn't work. They think they really mustn't do it. They think that people will turn off if they tell people um, the truth. So that was a major focus. This indifference is kind of permeating through our society. Where, where do you see it rooted from? Is it from, from what you say, this um, kind of um, masquerading of the, the, the truth of the matter? Look, I think it is. And there's actually a very interesting study which shows that just by telling people a strong message, it actually increases their optimism. Now, you would think it would do the opposite, right? It would make people pessimistic. But... There are studies showing that a lot of people basically underneath are quite fearful about the future, quite apocalyptic, just thinking, look, we're just not going to survive if we keep on going this way. I think the thing that makes people feel bad is not so much knowing that things are bad, like that's not great, but knowing that things are bad and seeing nothing happening. No one's talking about it. Nobody's doing anything. All the stuff that's that politicians are doing is, you know, blatantly inadequate. But even the things that, you know, a lot of environmental groups are proposing is just blatantly inadequate. And I think that's what actually breeds the despair. Whereas you can have sort of some really bad stuff happening, you know, like in times of war. But if people say, look, you know, we've got to stand up and fight, people will take enormous risks and do en make enormous personal sacrifices and still feel better than I think in a sense we do now in this sort of wilderness wandering around going, look, is it bad or isn't it bad? Why is nobody saying anything and why is nobody doing anything? So I think it's actually, I mean, we didn't, when we first started really experimenting with really hardcore emergency language, 
Um, well, we've been doing it sort of in our local climate group, Darabin Climate Action now, I mean, since 2007. But in 2016, when the reef bleached, um, we took a whole new sort of stronger sort of line on it and we joined with other groups who were asking the government to declare a climate emergency. So that's when we started really using that language. And it was just before the federal election. We thought, oh, you know, we won't even get any clear air for this. You know, it's not going to really work. But one of the things we did was we put an advertisement in the age. We had half a page. We had space for 25 famous people's names. And we had, you know, hundreds of people we were going to ring thinking, oh, they'll never, you know, put their names to this really strong language. Well, we rang 26 and we got 25. It was incredible. Because it, you know, amongst these famous people, they were pretty ready to agree. And look, since then, we've been out in the streets with this as a sort of petition, um, saying to people, do you agree that the earth's too hot? Do you agree that it's an emergency? Do you need that we need, do you agree that we need action on a, of a scale and speed never before seen in peacetime? And people go, yeah, of course we do. Why is nobody doing this? You know, it doesn't make them depressed. It just makes them excited that somebody is doing something. And that's the thing I found with the booklet. You know, I've got people from England ringing up saying, can I make a video of this? People offering to help write stuff. You know, when you speak out the truth, I think you get this enormous surge of energy. And I think especially amongst young people. You know, that's what you've seen with Bernie Sanders, with Jeremy Corbyn. Like, they're old guys, but they speak the truth. And you see these young people who've not been interested in politics before coming out and organising. It's the same with Podemos in Spain, young people. They organised a political party and, I don't know, within a really short space of time, were a big force on the Spanish political scene. But I think it's when you speak the truth and, and you give something, give people something concrete that they can actually do with other people, then, you know, I think there's a climate scientist who said, at this point, what we need is actually courage more than we need hope. We don't know if we can win, but what we need is this sense that we're part of something bigger than us and we're just going to go at it, you know, with courage and do, do what we can. You're listening to a conversation that I have with Jane Morton. She's the author of Don't Mention the Emergency. Uh, if you wanted a copy of her text, visit climateemergencydeclaration.org. That's climateemergencydeclaration.org. Just going to play a track now. It's um, Subculture Sage, Who's Thinking? <laughs> Now you see the truth in the visions of the realists. Daydreamers stay away from that mainstream play. Be simple thoughts, good if you're feeling it. Time's got me standing still. Talking won't make things happen for action. Words the catalyst, strap a split in pictures. Your activist manuscripts trying to seal to the bank and still pulse. Minds create the box they catch us in. Everyone's complaining, we don't know what the answer is. In the journey, the simple learning of chakras is magic. Sit back and relax and just let the planet spin. Everybody needs to calm down. Use gas, running roads on some arms, house calm. Is this really the world we live in? It's spirit is shut down. Ego's the tools we win it with. Are we thinking right? The darkness we can bring to light Why are things so complex in such a simple time? I will not live back, no Are we thinking right? Is the darkness we can bring to light Why are things so complex in such a simple time? I will not live back, no I will not live back 
God's bright food in the city. Little pity and Mr. T wouldn't emphasize, better try not acting a fool and keep it skipping. But a style smooth Vibes spread from town to town Venues all round the room It's true One equals one Positive's how we do We gotta live Rock a ship if it with me improved No a lot So I can't put problems by fire Why you stand in the shop The flower never does it on the night Tidal waves bring a clean slate To make it on the five on your dial um, we're just going to enter into part two of my conversation with Jane Morton talking about the fate of our species regardless of whether we're going to survive this or not it's like the fight for the human spirit <laughs> you know for our own self-determination um, you know in the face of death it's it's wildly poetic in so many ways <laughs> so yeah I I, I um, as much as there is so much despair, um, I'm wildly excited because of this, because because I do feel this surge and this potential, you know, resonating within my generation um, uh, with our self-awareness and our ability to kind of like, uh, if we are able to stand courageously mm. at the, the forefront of this and the potentials that we can build society into are enormous. Yeah, I don't think you should think that you going to die i don't think so yeah, like i've yeah. got kids and of course you know it worries me for their future i think that in some ways you know the the future will be hard for a bit but i think in some ways it'll also be very good you know because everything that we need to do to solve this basically makes the world a better place you know so we know you know renewable energy is better and electric um, vehicles are better and you know bikes and all that sort of it's all better but in order to solve it we actually have to make the politics better as well we have to somehow get control of those who are meant to be representing us. So we actually have to fix our democracy. We have to um, regain a free press. Um, We have to work together on something that's very big. And, you know, like often it's actually disasters, you know, floods and fires. Although it's a difficult time, it's also a very satisfying time because people are working together. There's not stupid point scoring or political, you know, um, infighting going on. People are working on something that really is life and death and they're working together in a collaborative way, doing stuff that stretches them, that, you know, involves sort of courage and altruism. And in fact, it makes people feel better than hanging all day on their iPhone, you know, what kind of, you know, what's my next fashion garment, you know, how should, you know, what colour should I paint the kitchen? That stuff is actually soul destroying. Whereas working on great things, 
well, to save ourselves, is is scary, but it's also satisfying. It's like tearing down the barriers that are isolating and alienating us and instead like helping us build relationships based on cooperation rather than competition. Absolutely. Yeah. And and on, on sort of courage and, and big things, a bigger vision, mm. you know, a much bigger vision than just, you know, the trivia that we've been, you know, we've been trained to be consumers, you know, just about, you know, how can I get more money? What can I buy with my money? You know, what groovy place can I go? And yet it, it destroys our souls. And, you know, it's not that long ago that people used to, like if there was a budget or something, the question would be, is this good for society? Now the only thing you ever see in the papers, and the papers really feed into this, is, oh, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? You know, it's it actually eats at your soul to think like this. And, you know, I think that when people wake up to the fact that it's an emergency, there'll be that satisfying feeling of being less selfish, basically, of thinking of the greater good, working for the greater good. And that's nourishing. Mm, absolutely. Is it? Is it going to take a literal emergency, though, for us to be able to realise this? Well, that's a... Sorry, I had to side in the microphone there. <laughs> Big side. Um, look, I don't know. Um, I, I've been called... Um, and um, oh, I've been called an optimist, <laughs> a pathological optimist. Um, <laughs> Me too. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like it in this interview, but... <laughs> no, it, it is coming because, I mean, my hero is actually Paul Gilding. And, yeah, he's a, an apocalyptic optimist. I think that's what I sort of am as well. Like, I think you've got to look the apocalypse in the eye. But, yeah, back in 2010, he wrote a book that I was almost too scared to read because it had a really scary-looking sort of cover, um, and it was called The Great Disruption. But basically what he argues, and, and that fits just intuitively with my guess about how it'll go, is that, you know, being human, human beings, we always sort of tend to leave things till the last minute. So we try not to do anything much, you know, try not to do anything much. And then something will galvanise us. Now, what exactly it takes, I don't know. Like, New York flooded, it didn't exactly galvanise us. The Barrier Reef bleached, I really think that did change things in Australia. Um, whether we need something more, I don't know. But anyway, his prediction is at some point, people will suddenly wake up. I have a feeling actually they're waking up now. I'm not sure, but I think it could be. Um, anyway, he thinks that at some point we'll just wake up, like pretty much the whole world will wake up and go, oh my God, this is really serious. We have no time left. And the good thing is that by then... Well, long ago, people were writing the plans about how we could do a 10-year transition. People have written plan after plan. There's ones for the whole world. There's ones for Australia. There's ones for most countries. So his prediction is that we suddenly leap into action. We do this 10-year transition, which, you know, involves everyone working and involves, you know, possibly you know, a bit less stuff for some period or maybe forever. But by the end of it, the experience of working together as a whole world to do something so important will change everything. That's I like that for an apocalyptic, optimistic view. Um, so, you know, that, that at that point, you know, this whole thing about the ultra-rich just, you know, um, milking everybody else dry, that will all have broken down because we'll have, have had to work. To, well, we will have had to do something to stop that sort of at the very start. And then this experience of just working together, you know, the wealthier nations with the not-so-wealthy um, on this great project will just change everything in terms of that dynamic to a much more egalitarian and compassionate and collaborative dynamic. So how, 
That's pretty good. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision. <laughs> yeah, it's one that I'm waiting for, even yeah. subconsciously. Hmm. Uh, I'm definitely waiting for everybody to not go into their cafe day job and instead to start like occupying buildings and create radical hmm. spaces where we can talk about alternative societies. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it, 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 um, it, it does seem as if it's not on our timeline, but instead... <laughs> Well, it's coming because I mean yeah. it's amazing how you know. Say even with Stop Adani and um, the efforts to stop you know Commonwealth Bank and so on investing, how many ordinary people have got involved in just you know um, sit-ins in branches or you know mm. going up to Queensland to actually you know lock onto the railway and mm. things like that. I think people's willingness and of course the amazing actions of people shutting down pipelines and so on in America. Uh, I think people are more willing to take direct action, peaceful direct action. And I think there's sort of a growing awareness amongst ordinary people that, in a sense, that's what's needed. Mm. And that it's, well, it's it's like people riding off to war. You know, it is, you know, desperate times calls, call for strong measures and, and a measure of self-sacrifice. But again, that the pleasure of working with, you know, I went up to the camp in Queensland, the Adani camp, just with amazing people up there. You know, that's the satisfaction of being involved in um, in those sorts of actions with people who are just so brave and so clever and so dedicated. Um, it actually really lifts your spirits. Mm. And I think there's more of it happening. Like, you know, I mean, it was amazing. For example, Lock the Gate, you know, working with conservative farmers, national voting farmers, you know, Going door to door, getting 98% of, you know, these country towns that had always just voted nationals to say that they wanted to lock the gate and to say that they would blockade, to say that they would work together. Like mostly they didn't need to because the thought of having to, you know, bust through a blockade of farmers, you know, is such a, a powerful deterrent. They hardly, I think, ever had to really do it. It was the day that the farmers were going to ride up Burke Street that they declared the um, moratorium rather than have farmers right up Burke Street to the state parliament. But, I mean, the fact that you can get really quite conservative people to sign up to such strong action to, to blockade their area, keep the, the, the gas companies out, I think it just shows, you know, that with if people really know it's serious, if they really know it's a life and death sort of threat, in that case it was to their water and their land, but the thing about climate is it's a life and death threat. If, if people know it, they will be brave and do stuff. That's what I think. Yeah, it's a testament to your bravery to be able to see that in the others. So um, where where to from here? You've just published this booklet. Hmm? What, what's, what's the plan? Yeah. Um, look, the plan, as always, is fuzzy because I think the interesting thing is that we have this massive snowflake, you know, the idea of a snowflake, you know, um, a massive movement that's networked all over the place. We've got renewable energy people and anti-fracking people and forest people and, you know, um, all sorts of pro-democracy, stop the TPP. You know, we've got all sorts of people working on all sorts of stuff. Most of them have not been working on a hardcore emergency message. So now we've got like this little booklet and this little group of people sort of in the centre. My hope is that we can just pump it out through those natural networks in every direction so that it takes off really, really fast. Pathological optimist. Um, no, I think it can. I mean, the, the level of interest in it has been quite extraordinary. 
you know, with people offering to help and, you know, wanting, you know, me or somebody to come and talk about it, you know, with wanting copies, with getting, you know, keen to give it to politicians, give it to opinion leaders, give it to journalists. And then suddenly it just seems like, especially The Guardian, has just taken off. Like, it's nothing even to do with us. With us, it's um, Guardian in, in England. We don't even know what's sparked it. And we're talking about, you know, climate emergency, existential threat. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the I, the hope is that it goes just pretty viral quick, pretty quickly and that everyone then just starts working sort of from an emergency mindset in whatever campaign they're already on. You know, it's not like everyone's got to stop the single-issue campaigns because the fact is it actually is easier to engage farmers around stuff that's to do with their land and it's easier to engage you know, people in Queensland around stuff that's to do with the reef. I don't think it's a matter of stopping all those single-issue campaigns. It's just a matter of being sure that the stuff that you say as part of your single-issue campaign fits into the broader mosaic of an emergency message. So ideally, you know, say the Adani message is We've got to leave all coal and gas in the ra- in the ground. That includes the Adani mine. This is because we're facing a climate emergency, and no one's going around saying we've got 20% of we've got a carbon budget. Like, how can we have a carbon budget when it's too hot? No one's going around saying, oh, there's only 20% of our coal and gas we can safely burn. How can we safely burn anything when the earth's too hot? So, if we could stamp out all the unhelpful messages that suggest that it's sort of a gradual thing. We can do a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, and have everybody contributing just a little bit to the emergency message. I mean, you don't have, I think you don't have to rave on about it endlessly and make people really depressed, but I think you have to just say, look, it's an emergency and that's why we're going to put solar panels everywhere. It's an emergency and that's why we're going to keep coal and gas in the ground. You can move on to the let's do this message and make that 90% of what you're saying, but just keep in your head and make sure that the people who are working with you know that's why we've got to do this hard fast and win and it and it begins by just changing the language changing the conditions of which you view the um, issue on so i will never forget (laughs) to call it a climate emergency and not a climate change anymore fabulous (laughs) so thank you for that well i think if everyone just did that you know things would actually change quite fast Mm. I hope everybody's feeling slightly elated about our state of affairs after that conversation. I was. I still am. Kind of, um, yeah, I feel pathologically optimistic. Uh, now I'm going to play another track by Subculture Sage just because uh, he's very prophetic and I appreciate everything that he conveys. This one is very relevant to our climate emergency. It's called Ride the Sun. Thank you. I wanna take you out If I can feel the same again I wouldn't be all alone Us, breathe the air Fill up your chest enough to hold it for a single year Cloud the atmosphere's finest, pure but insincere The sky's where we're landing, cause all of our people there Here for now, make the most is what the truth will say Wake up with a smile, not knowing what you might do today Freedom, enjoy the unknown, search deep 
find the strength to be the voice where love grows. Not simple task in this land with the poison hearts wrongs. But it's easy as making music with the choice of one note. That's impossible, some say. Philosophy judge way. Too much in it, one play. But not on our Sunday. I need to rethink my thoughts. Two man standing while three hit the floor. Now four man strapped with their team, it's for sure that in five days in June I won't be singing no more. My pain. I wanna take you out. If I can feel the same again, I wouldn't be over now. Meditate, but who's to know? Self-improvement. Every day there's room to grow. If knowledge is power and money's the proof you show, then wisdom's the tool we use to take us through to tomorrow. Right, the sun. The day's bright and across the meadow. It's London life. There's no time to stop and say hi. Read as many books as you like. Look like you're right. I only live a life the way the stars get took from the sky. Feel the sun kiss your skin. Feel the wind in your hair. Close your eyes and see that everyone's here. Brothers and sisters take all shapes, from birds to feathers. Mother nature's a lesson that we'll be learning forever. Plastics are bad, she'll be fine, we won't. Let's continue chasing paper with dreams to drive speed boats. And I see smoke in distances, cause high beams broke. Time will save us, but light speed won't. I wanna take you out If I can feel the same again I wouldn't be over now That was Subculture Sage with Ride the Sun, and this is Over the Wall. There's a high likelihood the federal government plans to roll out a cashless welfare card right across Australia, and the Labor Party are sitting on the fence when it comes to their answer about this Every person receiving welfare will be affected. It doesn't matter if you work and also receive welfare. 80% of your welfare payment will be quarantined and only 20% will be paid in cash. There are already many electorates around Australia experiencing what life is like on the cashless welfare card. Recently, the Australian Senate voted to further expand the rollout of cashless welfare cards known as INJU into the Hinkler electorate. Today on Over the Wall, we speak to Catherine Wilkes from No Cashless Debit Card Australia and also the Say No 7 campaigns, which you can find on Facebook. Catherine, on the website from the Say No 7 campaign, there's a statement, there's clear evidence of existing potential risks and harms of the cashless card trials to people's lives. Evidence has been provided to the Senate by the government's own trial evaluation reports via academic assessments 
political reports, written objections by social, religious and charity organisations and social welfare agencies. But the card has continued to be rolled out. Up here for the Hinkler electorate, they've used every line they can to try and make a point to have it here. They started out as 100 starving children attending breakfast clubs at the schools and then that was blown out to 1,000 starving children. And then it's about the intergenerational welfare dependency, which you know, is absolutely ridiculous because by saying that 90% of all under 25s would have had a parent at least on welfare at some stage, well, of course, because their parents would have received family tax payments or family payments at some stage, you know what I mean? Family tax benefit, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's easy to say that, isn't it? If you were under the old threshold of $134,000 a year at one stage earnings, you could still claim family tax payments. You know, So, of course, over the last 25 years, most people come from families where family tax was claimed. A lot of government spin has been put upon the fact of welfare being so widespread when it's actually a common part of most people's lives in the form of family tax benefits. Well, it's also decreased too. It's at the lowest rate it's been in 25 years as well. See, on one hand, they say how it decreased, and on the other hand, they're going at how widespread it is. But uh, the Social Security system has all sorts of different payments that they're lumping into one and branding it as welfare to demonise it. Do you know what I mean? To make it sound something bad. We used to be very proud of our social security system. We used to call it the social safety net, didn't we? Social security, you know, that's what it's for, is society security. That's what it's designed for. Now we've got a lot of people who don't feel that people should have access to it. And the system itself is so broken that a lot of people are waiting months and months and months to get access anyway. You know, making homelessness worse, it's, it's putting far more pressure on family units. And the amount of Social Security now is making it so it's not possible to um, buy a shopping trolley full of food and pay full rent. And to the point about youth and welfare, there's suggestions by government to connect forced drug testing of youth with the cashless welfare card. And also, if a teenager leaves Year 12 and doesn't have a job, they'll be forced onto the card straight out of school. Could you describe what you think about this, please? I think it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting to sell our kids off to a private corporation who gets to control where they basically they can live and how they can live and what they can buy and where they can go. That doesn't teach young adults autonomy. All right? In fact, all that does is create dependence on the state. Could you explain you know, that a bit more? Well, if you're going to take control of someone's life, of where they can shop and what they can do, where they can pay rent, and you're going to take over every aspect of their life, how can you not expect them to become dependent on you when they haven't learned to be autonomous in the first place? By forcing 80% of their cash to be controlled by the injury card. Absolutely, but it's not their cash anymore. Under Social Security law, right, when somebody's Social Security payment goes into their bank account, by law, that is their money, right? Now, 80% is sent to Indu. By law, it's Indu's money, and the banks are no longer recognising that 80% of that person's payment with Indu as that person's income. Even NILs don't know how they're going to work on this because NILs work on the credit criteria the same as any other lending institution. They do the no-interest loans for people on low incomes and on Social Security. So they do two types. They do the NILs loan, which is for white goods, computers, furniture and stuff like that 
car repairs. They do another loan called Good Shepherd Microfinance, which is a $3,500 loan to get a car. But $3,500 doesn't get you a very good car these days. That's on a low interest system. And I don't see how people are going to be able to... They won't be able to pass the credit criteria because they don't have enough income. And the Commonwealth Bank made a comment to this lady that was declined in Kalgoorlie that because they can no longer see her income in her bank, they had to decline. Because 80%'s in the Indu card. That's right. And they couldn't get proof from Indu that the other 80% was in Indu in, you know, in time. So they declined her. So that goes on her credit record that she's been declined for a loan. So therefore, people have now found out that they can't get loans. They won't be able to get Nils loans for white goods, computers for the kids and stuff like that. One lady on a carer's payment in Kalgoorlie was knocked back by the Commonwealth Bank for a car loan, which under normal circumstances she would have been approved for. But because of her Indu card, they could not verify the rest of her income. So therefore... The application is based on the 20% of the income that's in the bank. So, of course, she was declined for the loan because she didn't have enough fiscal income. She was a full-time carer for a disabled person. And she's in her late 50s and she's never had a problem in her life and she was going in to get a car loan because she needed to replace her car. She never had the problem before, but now that she's on the Indu card as a carer of somebody with a disability, she's now discriminated against because the only income, financial income, is the 20% that's in her bank. That's all that counts as her credit rating. Why do you think government treats people on low incomes this way? Why? I don't know why they do it because, but in this instance, whoever is involved with Indu and their affiliates stand to make a lot of money off the backs of our poor. There's a lot of profit in poverty. Perhaps we could compare the privatisation of prisons with what's happening with welfare at the moment where outsourced to job agencies and, and big companies like Serco. Well, of course, look at how much of the rot the job agencies are. They're milking the system. They've got clients on their books they send for course after course after course. They get double and triple payments for people that they've got on their books, but they don't actually help people get housing. They don't help people get a job. It's just become a great big gigantic rort. They've all got their penny in the pie. You know what I mean? Their fingers in the pie. And the way that I've heard how they treat people, they don't treat people with respect. They treat them like they're dirt. That's disgusting. And it shouldn't be. It's not right. Everybody in this country who is an Australian should not be treated differently because of their income or the colour of their skin. And at the moment, we've got a social security system which is doing exactly that. It started with the First Nations and now it's spreading to Social Security recipients and it creates a divided society, segregation and apartheid, as simple as that, a financial apartheid. In the protections of the Social Security Act in 1999, they don't seem to be meaningful anymore. They've been suspended for the people that are on the cards. That's why. Those protections have been gotten around. How, so how's that people, been done? By through legislation, through the minister. They've managed to do it through amendments to the legislation. You know, and this is wrong because it it now means that people on social security don't have any legal protections at all, do they? They're not protected. Their income's not protected. 
basically, with all the cuts to all of the services that are out there, can't get legal aid, you can't get legal protection and stuff, where do you go for your consumer protections? You know, Indu does have an ombudsman, but it's, what are they going to do? Are they going to be independent enough to actually do something if people are in real crisis with it? There's no fallback for the person on Social Security because you don't have money and your, your protections have been stripped away from you. And they're ignoring the human rights breaches. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, The time is 8.01am and that was over the wall talking about the increasing rollout of the cashless credit card for welfare recipients um, and all of the problems that that entails for those people that are living uh, with Centrelink support. Now, up next, um, we've got a few guests uh, over the phone and in the studio uh, because this Friday, the 19th of October, the New Economy Network Australia will host its annual three-day conference here in Melbourne. The title of this year's conference is Strengthening the New Economy for the Common Good. It promotes local, collective and innovative responses to the current global financial system, which the conference webpage describes as driven by an extractive logic which has created extreme wealth inequality, social injustice and ecological devastation on an unprecedented scale. The conference has invited almost 100 speakers to share their stories of success and challenge and communicate how we might move beyond the current unsustainable and unjust economic system that dominates Australia and much of the world. So we're lucky to be joined by some of the key speakers and organisers of the New Economy Conference. Dr Nick Rose is the CEO of Sustain, the Australia Food Network. He's an expert in food systems and food sovereignty and has developed the role of urban agriculture in compact cities. Nick, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Jackson. We've also got Dr Michelle Maloney, who's joining us over the phone from Brisbane. Michelle is an environmental lawyer and is co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, a national organisation devoted to the development of earth-centred law, governance and ethics, also known as Earth Jurisprudence. Good morning, uh, Dr Maloney. Thanks for joining us. Hello. It's lovely to be here. And last but not least, we've got Ian McBurney, who's the co-founder of Beehive.coop, which is Australia's first platform-driven, place-based, community economic cooperative, which is a mouthful, but I'm sure Ian will unpack it for us. Uh, Ian is an ecologically sustainability educator, an entrepreneur, a facilitator, a speaker, an MC, and an author. Ian, thank you for joining us on the phone. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the discussions each of you are going to be having over the weekend, I wanted to delve a little bit into how each of you came to be here. So recently, John Menadue, who's a former advisor to both Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser, he described the federal government as having no policy on climate change at all. He said the government is essentially in cahoots with climate sceptics, the Murdoch press and coal miners. Why is the current economy broken and why is the government in denial about it? Michelle, perhaps we could start with you. Wow, that's a big question. Why is the, the economy broken? Um, I think the economy itself is working perfectly well for the purpose to which it was designed, um, you know, by the 20th century developments post-Second World War. We saw a whole range of you know, so-called allies designing an international system that has had an impact on national systems, whether it's through the development of the IMF, the World Bank, neoclassical economics, whichever way you want to look at it, um, the economic system 
which we think has got its limitations deeply rooted in its complete disconnect from core elements of social justice and a complete disconnect from the reality of how our Earth system and our planet Earth actually works and how we should be living within the limits of our resources and our ecological health. But the matter of the federal government is a completely different issue, I think. Um, and I have my own personal opinions about the current federal government being um, a mix of completely, completely and utterly in the belief that the old systems are working just fine, that climate change is either something they can pretend to ignore or they genuinely don't believe it. Um, but my own personal opinion is that for many, many years, we've had a federal government completely in the pocket of corporate interests. They are what we would call an elite, a small, really relatively small number of people who are profiting extremely from the way the system works right now, and they are fighting really hard to defend the status quo. Yeah, I was, I was having a conversation with an older man I've known all of my life. I think I'd call him a baby boomer. And uh, he said he was sick of hearing millennials. I think he meant me, uh, that, we have, uh, that we're always saying that we have worse economic prospects than our, the previous generation. Because he said now we have access to thousands of high-tech consumer goods at low prices. How dire do you see the current situation of the economy, Nick? How pressing are the reforms that you're suggesting in this upcoming conference? Well, I think it's absolutely essential and urgent, Jackson, the situation that we're in. I don't think we've got any time to lose or, or waste. And it's a, a great tragedy, I think, that we're still spending time debating things like the reality of, of climate change. Um, just to reinforce what Michelle was saying, from my perspective on this, coming from uh, a background working in food systems and food sovereignty, as you mentioned, I guess my moment of political awakening came living in Central America for a number of years in Guatemala, in the early 2000s, uh, arriving in that country at the end of nearly 40 years of internal armed conflict, which left over 200,000 people dead and genocide against four of the Mayan indigenous groups. And the reason that happened was exactly what Michelle was saying. It was concentration of political and economic power. It was the role of the United Fruit Corporation of the United States uh, that overthrew a democratically elected government uh, to resist a program of egalitarian land reform, which actually would have allowed that country to uh, go on a path of, uh, of, of uh, decent, progressive, equitable development. Um, and that's happened time and time and time again. And for that country, the consequences are, you know, a, a non-functioning rule of law, a country that's awash in, in drugs and controlled by gangs in many parts of the city, rates of child poverty and malnutrition around 50% and waves of... Um, so-called illegal migration north of the United States. Uh, that's, you know, that is the reality that people have been living all around the world for many, many years. And that's, you know, one, just one outcome of the current, uh, economic paradigm that we're in. Uh, in Australia, the food system is dominated by a duopoly, by two, uh, retailers that set prices throughout the system. One of the, you know, just one of the outcomes of that is that, uh, you know, our farmers are getting older, young people are not going into agriculture, rates of suicide and depression amongst farmers are twice the national average. Uh, and then you combine that with, you know, domination of our diets by a fast food um, industry and a, a sugar-dominated industry that means now that diet is our leading cause of death and disease and the current generation are the first 
in this country's post-Aboriginal history to have reduced life expectancy. So, uh, and then we have, of course, the ecological dimensions of massive land clearing, meaning that we've got the highest rates of biodiversity loss on the planet, um, and our ecological resilience is is uh, evaporating before our eyes. So, you know, these are, these are, you know, you can look at this from a whole range of perspectives, but the situation is critical and urgent, and that's why we need, you know, um, conferences and movements like Nina. Mm. I think that I guess what Jackson was going to is that each generation feels like, you know, they're at a catastrophe and the generation previous to that thinks, no, well, it was tough for us too. But like you, I think like what you're saying there is that it's really a culmination of, you know, really poor economic policies for a long time. And, you know, I guess the nature of what the capitalist economic system looks like in its entirety anyway. And so, and what we're seeing now is ahead of all of these issues and of an economic and environmental crisis coming together to form, you know, a super crisis. And, you know, unless I, you know, I guess it's the first time really we had, you know, the economic, um, you know, the crash in 1929 and things like this, which, you know, people were alarmed about that and, you know, change happened across the world in some ways or people were revolutionized by that. But this is a, this kind of, um, you know, the language that we need to kind of engage with people of the kind of disaster of the way the world's heading is kind of alarmist for people and it does kind of have to wake people up to take action around that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a, a good metaphor is the one of, you know, somebody who's been perhaps living a lifestyle that's not conducive to their good health and they suffer a major um, health crisis, mm-hmm. a, you know, a heart attack or something and it's a, it's a wake-up call and say, right, you know, I need to radically change the way I'm treating my body and living my life, otherwise I'm going to die. And mm. I think that's, we're getting those messages from, you know, our, our home, from the environment to which we're intimately connected and we've been living as though we are above it and beyond it and can just, you know, exploit it for our own good endlessly and, and there's going to be a techno-utopic view that's going to come and, and save us all and we're going to ride off happily into the sunset. Well, I just don't think it's like that and I think mm. a lot of people now are waking up to the fact it's not like that. And I think, um, for me, when, uh, sorry, Thomas Berry um, captured this in his last book, The Great Work, where he said, the challenge of our time right now is to move from a period of human devastation of the earth to a, to a point where we would be... Uh, present to the planet in a mutually beneficial manner. So it's it's a paradigm shift that we're talking about, a, a fundamental transformation in our understanding of who we are and why we're here. It's um it is also about getting everybody on board, and I think you know that was what James was talking about too. That different generations have a different approach to this. Layla, who's um you know, and myself, who are quite young, you know, feel the urgency of this. But older generations might feel like, well, this climate change is going to happen, but I not might not be around to see its major impact. So. I'll shrug. So, Ian, I know you've done a lot of work on galvanising communities to start to make change together across community. And I wanted to ask you, how can we inspire people that the changes we need in how we organise ourselves and how we organise our cities, for example, need to happen now? Yeah, it's a a tricky one. We've had wonderful environmental educators around the world for... 40 years who've been working on this and they've been up against uh, the biggest PR campaigns that have ever been set up in human history funded by fossil fuels. Um, mm. So, you know, in, in many ways that's, that's why we haven't seen sweeping changes. Um, but the, the other reason why is that we this time it's actually a change of structure and a change of value. Um, you know, we've had generations in the past that have gone through great change and a lot of my mentors um you know the anti-nuclear movement of the early 80s was was huge for them and you know we 
we felt like as a civilization we were close to the edge. And a lot of incredible creativity came out of that period. But, you know, this time we're, you know, we're, we're probably 10 or 20 years away from, um, from kissing goodbye to a functioning civilization. So mm. it's, it, it is different. But our, our values are, are what needs to change. You know, everyone's done all the individualistic things, which we started recycling in 1990 and we changed the light bulbs in about 2000. Um, and a lot of the political pushback we've got at the moment is that this is actually about our values. And, and uh, you know, we've had changes come through before um, and it's still being able to have the same set of values. But, um, you know, w- what we need to talk to people about is, is that the future that we're talking about, not only does it enable us to have a future, um, but it's, it's better for us. You know, to be, to be socially connected locally is huge for our health. You know, to, to be um, getting out of individually owned fossil fuel, um, fueled cars and into shared electric vehicles is, is good for us in our local places. To be walking more, to be cycling more, to be eating local foods, to be building local food systems, to be, to be working in our local place. I mean, the, the story before this interview was about the, the cashless welfare card. We have the biggest levels of inequality that we've almost ever had in human history at the moment. And um, we have so much work to do locally. And what we need to do is, is, is create local economies from the ground up in local places. And, um, you know, people need to be building things and making things and fixing things and remaking things. And we need to own our local economic system, mm. whether it's transport or energy or food or water or, or whatever. And, you know, Buckminster Fuller said, don't fight the existing reality, create the new one. And people will, people will flock to it if it's better. And, um, you know, what we need to do is, is you know this what this whole movement is about is building something that's better it's better for local people better for our health it's better for our work uh, it's better for equality it's better for the climate it's better for biodiversity and you know when those pieces of the puzzle start coming together for people they'll they will flock to it because it's better it's, it's good for us Mm. We're talking at the moment with Ian McBurney as well as Nick Rose and Michelle Maloney. They're all part of the New Economy Conference, which starts this coming Friday, the 19th of October. Uh, and we're talking about you know, ways to change uh, the society that we're living in so that we avoid environmental catastrophe and stop the growing inequality that we're seeing across Australia. I think you touched on something really interesting there, though, uh, Ian, about, you know, if all this change needs to happen, you know, we've just seen this report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you know, which a lot of media outlets have come out with advice, like you just described, on what people can do on an individual level, you know, drive your car less, you know, change your light globes, get a smart thermostat in your house. But people, uh, The Guardian published an article recently countering that, saying that 71% of global emissions are made by just 100 companies. So I'm interested in, in how you guys see, you know, what can business do to turn this around? What role can they play? What role will they play? How much responsibility rests with them? Nick? Well, I think business uh, have a fundamental role to play for the reasons that you just mentioned. Um, but I think, I think the stat that you just, you just pointed out there in terms of uh, responsibility for emissions shows that there are some systemic changes that, that need to be made. And, and you, you put your finger on you know, one of the 
the issues and, and the contradictions where, you know, we're, we're, we're confronted with a, you know, a collective species level crisis. And yet the, you know, the solutions that are kind of trotted out again and again are you as an individual can do this, this and this as a consumer. So that's, in terms of changing stories, changing narratives, changing systems, it's not doing that at all. It's simply reinforcing the existing dynamic which sees us all as individuals and, you know, not separated and life is an individual pursuit and it's me versus you, etc. Um, that's one of the things that we have to get around, which is why, you know, what Ian's doing, what Michelle's doing, what this conference is about, working together, working collectively, new economic models such as cooperatives are, are, so, are so important uh, in getting beyond that. Um, but businesses themselves, I think, you know, have a, even within the existing kind of, um, uh, capitalist system have a really, you know, important and necessary role to play in the transition period. And, you know, banks being one of the examples, the financial system, which will be discussed in detail in this event, uh, you know, having a fundamental infrastructural role to play in the way the economy and society functions. Money, uh, shapes and determines so much of what actually takes place. And if banks are starting to do things like divest, for example, of fossil fuels uh, and put their money into renewables, uh, new business models, then that sends a powerful signal as well as giving a, a huge impetus to the, um, you know, to the, the, the sustainable, better economy that's, you know, struggling to be born at the moment. Mm. I guess the flip side of that as well is, you know, the, the structures that you're looking to change and, you know, what are the structures that, you know, we can use in order to change those as well? I think that, you know, um, kind of activism and even the unions and movements like that have become, you know, essentially a part of the system in a lot of ways that, you know, certain parts of um, advocacy and um, activism are accepted as part of the everyday life. But how do we look to, you know, radically transform the kind of models of economic structure? And, and Ian mentioned about, you know, taking back ownership of things like telecommunications companies, transport and things like that. Mm, what kind mm. of... Um, you know, organisations, what kind of um, things can we use as movement to, to do that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously uh, Michelle and Ian will have things to say about this as well, but, uh, you know, from my perspective, it, it, uh, in terms of political strategy and movement building and transformation, you need to proceed from an understanding of, you know, what it is you're actually dealing with, what are the causes of the situation. So uh, for me, climate change is a crisis, but in another level, it's a, a symptom of a, a much deeper root of crisis, which I think Michelle uh, referenced earlier about, you know, disconnection. Mm. Um, you know, in, in terms of thinking about, well, the system that we've got, capitalism, what are some of its determining characteristics, its fundamental uh, operating modalities? One of them is the commodity and commodified exchange. Um, so if you've got, and then private ownership of the means of production of land assets. So looking at economic models, looking at ways of organising ourselves in which we get past those structures. You know, we move from private ownership to shared ownership. Mm. Uh, we move away from wage labour to, you know, worker owned businesses and cooperatives. Um, uh, we move away from private ownership of land to shared ownership of land, these kinds of things. I think supporting these kinds of initiatives uh, and projects and then scaling them up, um, mm -hmm. embedding them in institutions is, I think, one uh, viable and effective uh, form of political and economic strategy. Michelle, what role can the law play in facilitating these types of transitions <coughs> from private to public ownership of essential uh, items like land and services and businesses? Yeah, it can play a very helpful role, of course. I mean, it's the legal system today that holds up and supports extreme private property ownership. It holds up and supports and provides the 
I guess, the, the fundamental infrastructure for allowing the policy decisions that are made around our economic system, where the taxation um, benefits go, how do we structure our laws so that corporations are able to avoid so much paying of tax. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the legal system itself can be seen as either a, a tool wielded by um, the politicians and the elected few who make the laws. You could also see it as an element of social change. Um, and we are seeing around the world, whether it's through the rights of nature movement or through sharing law through a whole range of different ways, um, people pushing back at the legal system itself in a manner of like lots of different ways to rearrange it. So, for example, right now, if you want to do certain activities as a grassroots group, you might bump into um, certain legal requirements to have something as simple as insurance. But even 10, 15 years ago, you weren't legally obligated to have that kind of protection. Mm. And now it's stopping smaller groups from even doing certain activities, and that's a law reform issue. Um, there's a wonderful lawyer in the US called Janelle Orsi at the Sustainable Economies Law Centre, and she often points out that it's in the grey areas that communities and others find themselves really big laws to stop certain activities were in fact created to prevent um, corporations making harm. Um, but sometimes little groups fall into those places where it's not relevant to them, but they're still being blocked by the law. Then there's also all the different ways that law can help create a different framework. So, you know, to even have a national regime for cooperatives to ensure that little groups can create co-ops, which in itself helps transform the ownership and control and equity in an organisation. In this day and age, you need the legal structures to make the incorporation of those entities something that is achievable and doable. So our legal system is both, at the moment, a huge hindrance to some of the kind of small-scale economic activities people want to do, and we see corporations and others wield the legal tool around quite a lot. We see with ag-gag laws overseas, and some of them are creeping in 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 Australia, where corporations actually influence the creation of laws so that they support those corporate interests and suppress community interests. We see that particularly through environmental and planning law, Most of our legal system is geared towards allowing large-scale developments, and it's very, very hard for most community groups to stop it. So Mm. there's a huge number of ways that the law can be of use, Um, and it's also uh, sometimes it's a barrier, sometimes it can be a really great tool. Yeah, well, just one one um, concrete example of where a community tried to resist uh, further expansion of corporate power was a few years ago. The No Maccas in the Hills out in Melbourne in the mm-hmm. community of Tacoma did not want another McDonald's opposite a primary school. The local government, in that case, the yeah, Rangers Shire Council, actually supported them and backed them and refused the uh, development application from the corporation. But then the company appealed to VCAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which overturned the council's decision on the basis that under current state planning law in, in Victoria... Uh, a council cannot take into account the health and well-being impacts of that type of business. So that's a specific <laughs> example where you know a corporation is empowered mm. uh, to just expand endlessly. Uh, communities and local yeah. governments do not have the legal means to fight back. Um, mm. So that you know that's a key reform no. agenda for us in the sustainable and healthy food movement to get that changed.
Yeah, it is a really interesting tension, Michelle, which you just touched on. Like, I, to my mind, I think of the TPP, which has been, you know, renegotiated now, which may protect corporations from regulation that voters have asked governments to enact mm-hmm. to protect them from the actions of corporations, yeah. but that will see corporations protected. I also think of here in Victoria, we're seeing a growth in privatised for-profit prisons, you know, and alongside mandatory sentencing yeah. and everything that that's, that that brings up. So, you know, with these mo- monolithic structures that all of you have des- described as often, you know, in Position to the changes you're, you're, you're trying to make, you know, what what can what can we do? You know, how do we how do we slowly change these uh, these systems so that they work well, for I, people? I can jump in. Yeah. Well, I mean, the simplest way to think about it is exactly as Ian. We use that quote by Buckminster Fuller a lot, particularly for the New Economy Network Australia for Nina, which is we can spend a lot of time trying to fight the existing system. But we can also just get on with the things we can do on the sidelines, or not on the sidelines, in the centre of things, our work. So I actually see the two strategies. The, the simplest way to describe them is we must work as empowered citizens to create the world we want. And that's not just an altruistic statement. That's we build our sharing libraries. We build our new co-ops. We do everything we can to build the stuff we want. And there's a huge amount of range in this country to do that. You know, we are still a fundamentally the, the white society, privileged society in this country still has a huge amount of scope to create great things. We can do that. Mm. And at the same mm. time, we have to stop, draw attention to and really fight to um, uh, end some of the practices that are no good. So to me, they're, they're completely compatible. We have to do both at the same time. And it's the same. We see people heavily involved in the Stop Adani campaign, uh, using divestment as a way of taking investment away from coal. And then at the same time, you know, we see there's a phenomenon of um, community energy organisations around Australia where mm. communities are taking control. They're pooling their resources. Mm. They're buying community energy. They own it. They control it. So I'd like the message Mm, from this chat to be there's a ton of amazing stuff going on. And what Nina, what we as organisers of Nina are most excited about is the sheer volume of incredible work that civil society are doing. And Mm. I really like to remind people that it's when governments are showing no leadership that the rest of us have to really step up and be as shiny and positive as we can. And that's certainly what we're trying to do. Yeah, Ian, can you tell us a bit about the way technology is transforming communities? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, we're at Beehive creating a a digital uh, sharing economy platform that starts with um, neighbours. So um, when people sign up to Beehive, they get um, linked in with their village, which is their neighbours, their closest 250 or 150 neighbours, however many they would like in their own village. And they can communicate and organise and share free things with their neighbours and build relationships and create a sense of belonging. Um, and then we're building shared economy applications in around that. So um, we're starting in Bendigo, but this could this could happen in, in any local place. Um, so you could build in stuff sharing or peer-to-peer transport or peer-to-peer energy or money or food or space or logistics or whatever. And the idea is that we build our local economy that will grow to the size of each local place and then it doesn't need to grow anymore. We want to localise work, we want to relocalise spending, we want to create <clears throat> a society where everyone can build their own local reputation and the di- digital tools um, that are being developed now for people to be able to um, create peer-to-peer economies and exchange 
you know, person to person, community to community, um, and to to build their own level of reputation that allows uh, that allows them to interact in their local economy, and to own their own data, because a lot of the a lot of the global digital platforms are, um, you know, they're actually a privacy nightmare, um, as well as an um, economic extraction tool. Mm. So what what we're doing is we're we're building something from the ground up, and we're and we're saying to people, you, you know, you need to be connected with your local community. You need to build a local economy up in a local place, and one that looks after the local ecology as well. Mm. And when we get people connected, you know, people, you're not going to get people excited about joining a um, a peer-to-peer economy cooperative. You're going to get people excited about saying, oh, I, you know, I'm actually spending ten thousand bucks a year on a car, and I could actually save a half to a quarter of that. Um, by sharing access to a car with neighbours. Mm. And in doing that, we're actually building the skills to build a cooperative economy because we're saying to the neighbour, oh, how's this going to work? How are we going to deal with reputation? What sort of digital tools are we going to use? Yeah. You know, are you happy with this? Are you happy with that? These are conversations we haven't had with, uh, with our consumption in years and years and years because it's all about going to the, you know, the, the super shopping centre and buying something from a global corporation. Yeah, all and what about we need ease to of access. Is... I'm sorry, yeah, I'm going to have to cut you off, Anne. I'm very sorry. We're running out of time. It's been a great conversation. Right. And, and for those who've enjoyed listening to all of our guests, I want to thank each of you, Nick, Michelle and Ian. Um, the conference runs uh, for three days from this Friday, the 19th of October. It's the New Economy Network Australia's conference, which is strengthening the new economy for the common good. You can hear about all of these issues and a lot more, ways to take action, ways to get involved. Um, they've got the website. If you just type in uh, New Economy Conference, you're going to find it. I think it's neweconomy.org.au. Yep. neweconomy.org.au, you're going to find it all out. You've been listening to 3CR Breakfast here on 855 AM, and up next is Women on the Line. Thanks for listening.